Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As usual, I'd like to start today with a couple of notices. First of all, I'd like to thank my new Patreon supporters, Natalie, and, donating from the grave it would appear, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Your support means so much to me, so thanks so much to you and all of my other wonderful patrons. Using your generous donations, I've been able to make some improvements to my home studio recently, including a brand new laptop that doesn't weigh about 3,000 tonnes, which should make it much more pleasurable to cut between work, my house, and the Bodleian Library. If you'd like to become a patron of the Queens of England podcast, then head over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast, where you can give as little as $1 per month. I've also had some great iTunes reviews recently, including one from Mel B in Canada, I assume no relations to Scary Spice, where she got a little overexcited and started exclaiming things all in caps. These reviews all give me a rather unhealthy ego boost, so keep them coming. You can keep up with the show on Facebook and Twitter, so check those out. And of course, don't forget about the Tudor Summit, which I spoke about last week. It goes live starting next Sunday, so head over to englandcast.com forward slash Tudor Summit 2017 to find out more and to sign up. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Elizabeth's Tutors, Sweden and the Habsburgs. Before I get going today, I will warn you ahead of time that when I sat down to plan this episode, I immediately came across two large problems. Firstly, to probably discuss Elizabeth's marriage proposals from the various princes of Europe, you kind of need to delve into the internal politics and foreign policies of all of the duchies, kingdoms and empires involved over a period of about three decades, and that's just not really all that practical to do in one episode. I'm going to do my best to summarise it all in brief, but if I have piqued your interest at all, I would really recommend that you do some further reading. I will only be scratching the surface of the tensions within the Holy Roman Empire, the French religious civil wars that were breaking out at this time, and, my personal favourite, the tensions up in Scotland that bordered on anarchy. And that is before I consider all the disputes happening in England over the Elizabethan religious settlement. The second half of the 16th century is extremely messy basically everywhere, and so for the sake of clarity, I will be breezing past some pretty seismic issues going on, so please forgive me for that. The second problem is that even with all of that in mind, there was still far too much to cover in just one episode. So I have yet again had to divide one long episode into two smaller ones, each dealing with two of Elizabeth's most interesting and important suitors. Got it? Okay, great. Let's dive in. Since the Norman Conquest, it was by far the norm for monarchs to marry spouses from abroad. 
We've spoken about this a lot before, but it's worth reiterating. Depending on whether you count Matilda of Scotland as being foreign or not, England had not had a consort from her own shores for around 300 years, possibly more, until Elizabeth Woodville married Edward IV. Since then, things have become rather different, with only three consorts coming from abroad. Catherine of Aragon, Anne of Cleves, and Philip of Spain. These all varied in terms of quality as spouses, but of course the most important for our story is the most recent, Philip of Spain. I spoke a lot more about him two weeks ago, of course, but to recap, no one had been much in favour of the match between him and Mary Tudor from the get-go. They worried that, with him being a man, he would interfere in the kingdom, establish the Inquisition, drag England into ruinous wars, and sideline into irrelevance the kingdom's rightful monarch, Mary I. While things had never gotten quite as dire as all that, there is no doubt that many of these worst fears did come true. Philip never did manage to dominate Mary as some feared, but you can see his fingerprints over the Marian repression of Protestants, and of course it was the war that he dragged England into that lost her the prized jewel of Calais. He was so unpopular that when his wife was on her deathbed, Philip was warned to stay away for fear of his own safety. No one had wanted him at the beginning, and everyone hated him at the end. Since Mary I had been the first Queen Regnant of England to reign more than a few months, her marriage with Philip was the only context that Elizabeth had for a ruling queen marrying. It wasn't exactly auspicious. We saw last week that Elizabeth I had, for the first half of her reign, a serious squeeze on Robert Dudley. Yet he was also unattainable for various reasons. The nobility of England, everyone basically, wanted Elizabeth to marry. They would have preferred someone from these shores, not Dudley, but someone. They would accept someone from abroad if necessary. The key was for her to marry someone. From the perspective of the foreign princes, Elizabeth was a once-in-a-lifetime catch, and it's not because of her good looks or her flowing red hair. She was the ultimate heiress, a queen regnant with no real descendants or family around to speak of. Marry her, and, in a sense you have conquered England. Well, that is hyperbole, but the simple fact is that someone had to inherit the kingdom after her death. So even if the price of marrying her was to let her keep all the power and her crown, which would surely be the case, then at least your child with her would take the crown. Combine that with your own holdings, that could create an empire. What a legacy that would be to put on your gravestone. Much like any alluring-looking player in a football transfer market, anyone and everyone who was available was linked to Elizabeth. For some, it was just rumour. For others, there were some tentative inquiries, but not much after that. Among these were her sister's former husband, Philip of Spain. Now, of course, as I've said already, he was persona non grata at the moment, but such things could change, and there were still some advantages to the match. The basic diplomatic outlook on the continent hadn't changed. France still had effective control over Scotland, and thus England was threatened from two sides. An alliance with Spain was still a very attractive defensive option, and now that Philip had officially become King Philip II of Spain, a marriage between sovereigns could do the trick. He would have to be brought to heel, but such things could happen. As for him being her sister's widower, well, the rules had been somewhat bent when Henry VIII had married his brother's widow, If there was a will, there could be a way. But there was no will. Quite apart from these moral considerations, there were worries about religion. At the start of her reign, Elizabeth was pushing through what would be her longest-lasting legacy for the kingdom, her religious settlement. While it was far from being hardcore Protestantism, it was most certainly not Catholic, and so a marriage alliance with the most Catholic of royal dynasties was a big no-no. 
Philip, though it seems he was keen on the match, far keener indeed than he had been on marrying Mary, was told from the get-go that this was probably a non-starter. His man in England told him that, quote, Everyone thinks that she will not marry a foreigner, and they cannot make out whom she favours, so that nearly every day some new cry is raised about a husband. Philip's suit was politely rejected, and there were more that were treated in much the same fashion, among them Charles IX of France. But there were some that were thought on more seriously, some men who came closer to sitting on the throne of England next to Elizabeth than others. It is these men that I will deal with in these two episodes. I mentioned some of them last week, but I will do so again. They are Eric the Fourteenth of Sweden, Archduke Charles of Austria, Henry, Duke of Anjou, and Francis, Duke of Alençon. Their suits will wax and wane due to the changing political situation in Europe, the advantages that they offer to Elizabeth in England, and their own personal qualities. They are quite a diverse lot, but with one thing in common. They would all fail. And yet it was never certain, even to Elizabeth herself, that she would die the Virgin Queen. So who were these men, and why did they fail to win the hand of the most eligible bachelorette of the 16th century? The first man that I will introduce you to is Eric of Sweden. The same age as Elizabeth, Eric was the heir to the throne when he first crossed Elizabeth's radar. Now, he was no Johnny-come-lately. He had been pursuing Elizabeth since she had been a mere princess. He had proposed marriage then, but knowing that marrying a foreign prince would likely lead to the end of any hope she had of wearing the English crown, Elizabeth refused him. However, in 1559, a year after Elizabeth became Queen of England, Eric renewed his suit and once again proposed marriage. Now, on the face of it, he looks a pretty good option. He was a Protestant, and there weren't a whole lot of Protestant kings about, so if you wanted one, he was a pretty safe bet. In diplomatic terms, it seemed sound as well, as it could open up markets in Scandinavia and northern Germany to English trade. The terms of the proposed deal were also very beneficial. The Swedes agreed to limit his household and pay their own expenses. Eric would remain in England during their marriage, even despite his Swedish obligations, and agreed not to interfere in English affairs, and that the two kingdoms would be ruled entirely separately, though there was a proposed offensive and defensive alliance. And here was the best bit. The Swedish monarchy, unlike that of most of the rest of Europe, was elective, so any child of their marriage would not necessarily become the ruler of both kingdoms, thus safeguarding England from being ruled from abroad by a foreign king. But with Eric, there were two main problems. First, and to be fair, this wasn't a huge problem, he was Lutheran, while England tended to favour a more Swiss-aligned form of Protestantism. Far from an insurmountable problem, but it would be wrong to say that they were completely compatible in terms of religion. The other problem, though, was more significant. Sweden just wasn't all that useful to England. Under Elizabeth, England did not have much in the way of an offensive goal on the continent. They were mainly concerned with defence. Now, sometimes attack is the best form of defence, but it is fair to say that Elizabeth, unlike, say, her father, did not hanger after restoring the empire of Henry V. If your foreign policy goal is defence, then you need to keep the major powers that might threaten you both at bay. Since marriage was a prime component of any successful foreign policy, and it wasn't something that could be reused again and again, unless you were Henry VIII, then you needed to use it carefully to achieve the best suit. Then you need to use it carefully to achieve the best results. And since Elizabeth was opposed to marrying in general, if she was to choose someone, then it had to be an offer she couldn't refuse. Unfortunately for Eric, he just didn't represent good bang for his buck. Sweden wasn't likely to worry either France or the Habsburgs. Indeed, it would just piss them off. 
and even the trade argument doesn't really hold up, as England's main trading market was with the Netherlands, and they were very much more in favour of a Habsburg marriage. Therefore, Elizabeth said no for a second time. But Eric was nothing if not a persistent man, and continued to press, as did his ambassador in England. He let her know that he would like to visit her in person, knowing that she had in the past stated that she would not marry anyone that she had not personally met. She told him not to bother. He tactically ignored her, and prepared an embassy that would be impossible to refuse, including 10,000 men and a massive quantity of gold. He meant business. But then everything changed in September 1560. Eric's father died, and so when Eric inherited the throne, he had a rather different set of priorities. Also, given that now his position was that bit more exalted, he was not willing to make so many concessions. The atmosphere in London now was rather more in favour of the match, as circumstances at home on the continent were changing. Dudley's wife's death and his overtures towards Spain, along with the recent widowing of Mary I, Queen of Scotland, meant that the along with the recent widowing of Mary I, Queen of Scots, meant that suddenly both the English nobility were keen for anyone but Dudley to marry the Queen, and also were worried about the possibility of a Swedo-Scottish alliance. Eric's agents in England promoted him as the good Protestant in a sea of threatening Catholic princes. Despite the fact that they were now offering less generous terms than before, Elizabeth accepted his request to visit him, and another great trip was planned. Londoners salivated at the prospect of all those handsome Swedes coming over in ships filled with gold. Stationers started selling products with Elizabeth and Eric together as man and wife. Some things never change when it comes to royal weddings. But the whole thing was a complete disaster. The weather in the North Sea was terrible, as usual, and the fleet had to return to harbour. At this point, Eric essentially asked Elizabeth if he actually stood a chance here, as it appeared he was making all the effort for not much interest on her part. This was not aided by further rumours reaching Sweden of her scandalous mixings with Dudley, and so Eric presented his final offer to her, which was worse than all the ones he had before presented. It was, as you might expect, rejected, and the English nobility, led by Dudley, further let Sweden know who was boss by boycotting a feast held by the Swedish ambassador. Eric's pan-European search for a wife would continue. He next went after Mary I of Scotland, without success, and then a number of other French and German ladies, before finally settling for his mistress, Karen. Even during these pursuits, he... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Still sent speculative letters to Elizabeth, checking to see if he had any more of a shot now, but to no avail. Throughout his pursuit of Elizabeth, Eric's great rival for her hand, other than, of course, Dudley, who we discussed last week, was Archduke Charles of Austria, who we will discuss next. Archduke Charles of Austria was a senior member of the House of Habsburg, and seven years younger than Elizabeth. He was the son of the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand I, who had inherited the title from his brother Charles V. He was the third son, and so would likely not inherit the empire, but did rule an area known as Inner Austria, a territory that these days comprises of parts of Austria and Slovenia. So he had the noble chops to be an acceptable match. He was also a Habsburg, and so that would keep England within their alliance structure, giving them some protection against France. All looked pretty good. Indeed, Elizabeth had already been linked with marriage to his elder brother, Ferdinand, when she had been a princess, but that had not gone anywhere. There was just one snag here, really. Charles was Roman Catholic. Interestingly, the great champion of the Austrian match in England was not some Catholic sympathiser, but the arch-Protestant voice at court, William Cecil. He was certainly no friend of the Habsburgs, and would be expected to be the voice of caution in any entanglement with them. Here is how historian Susan Doran explains his reasoning for this perceived vault face. Quote, He wanted Elizabeth to marry to produce an unchallenged Protestant heir, and the Archduke was his candidate because, in his view, Charles was preferable in every way to Robert Dudley. The Archduke's religion was admittedly an inconvenience, but to Cecil's mind it posed much less of a threat to the security of the realm or the Protestant settlement than Elizabeth's unmarried state. Now part of this may have been because of a confusion over Charles's own religious zealotry. His side of the family were not the most extreme of Catholics. They espoused a degree of toleration towards Lutherans within their part of the empire and had not implemented all of the counter-reformation reforms that had come out of the Council of Trent. Cecil was willing to accept Charles largely because he believed that his heart was not truly with the old faith and would therefore be open to a settlement whereby he would not attempt to interfere with the religion of England. Initially, things did not look good for the marriage from the Austrian perspective, as he, like seemingly everyone in Europe, was also chasing Mary I of Scotland. There was also somewhat of a crisis in communication at the time, as Austria did not have a presence at Elizabeth's court. While they would normally operate through the channels of the Spanish, the Spanish ambassador de Quadra was persona non grata in England, thanks to his being involved in an Irish plot. Furthermore, Charles's father Ferdinand, the Holy Roman Emperor, was still a bit peeved about how Elizabeth had rejected his other son a few years earlier, and so was suspicious of the men now telling him that she was suddenly keen on his younger son. For her part, Elizabeth did express some interest in the match, in a manner of speaking. In a report back to the Emperor, the Imperial Ambassador wrote that, quote, Her Royal Highness states that she has had many and splendid offers of marriage, which she has not entertained but that, at the urgent request of the estates, she is resolved to marry, but not an Englishman. She is free to take whom she will, and does not need the assent and consent of the estates. She will accept neither France, nor Spain, nor yet Sweden, or Denmark. As I'm sure you've noticed, once those realms were removed, that pretty much just left Austria, but it was far from a come-and-get-me plea. She also sent terms, though, by which she would accept marriage, 
which follow very closely the treaty that married Mary I of England to Philip of Spain, including that the laws and religion of England could not be changed. All offices would be filled by Englishmen. Elizabeth and any future children could not be conveyed out of the kingdom, and that she should receive a substantial dowry and pension, and that they would not be drawn into foreign wars. It seemed clear at this point, in the mid-1560s, that marrying a native Englishman was completely off the cards, and so all attention focused on which foreign prince would marry Elizabeth. At the time, there was also a suit being pressed by Charles IX of France. Supporters of the Bachelor of Charles pointed out that since he was German, his customs were already quite similar to that of England, and that in terms of age and status they were very compatible. There was also the argument that you didn't need to be so concerned with the prospect of Charles hanging around in England should Elizabeth predecease him, as Philip of Spain hadn't done so after Mary's death. Plus, he was the son of one emperor, and now the brother of the new emperor Maximilian. You don't get much more of a noble family than that. When Maximilian received Elizabeth's terms for marrying his brother, he was not impressed. He strongly disapproved of the clauses regarding religion, stating that Charles and everyone in his entourage should be free to practice their religion openly with Catholic priests. He rejected the financial commitments that Elizabeth had demanded, instead saying that it should be her that pays the dowry. And then the kicker. Charles must have proper royal title and the right of succession to the throne if Elizabeth died childless. These were all clauses that Elizabeth and England were never going to budge on, so everything was thrown back to square one. Elizabeth's responses were uncompromising. The only deal that could be done would be on the basis of the marriage of her sister. Moreover, she stated that, quote, two persons of different faiths could not live peaceably in one house essentially demanding that Charles convert should he wish to marry her. This was largely due to politics at home, whereby her middle way between Catholics and radical Protestants was causing friction. She could hardly demand total conformity to her religious settlement from them, and then bend the rules for herself. While Cecil was gratified that Elizabeth was not proving to be against marriage on principle, or even indeed predisposed against marrying Charles personally, This dispute between two immovable objects was a seemingly impossible one to resolve. There was continued correspondence between the two camps, some conciliatory, some less so, but none of them offered any serious movement away from their entrenched positions. The supporters of the marriage in England, including Cecil, Norfolk and Sussex, were disheartened by all of this, but their overriding concerns about the need to preserve good relations with the Habsburgs and secure the succession meant they kept the pressure up on Elizabeth. Further perspiration was being added to the sweat on their brows when they heard that Mary I of Scotland had just announced that she was pregnant. That child, should it be a son, which it would turn out to be, would be the closest in line to the throne. England needed an heir born to her queen to meet this potential threat. Caving to the pressure, Elizabeth sent an ambassador to Vienna in 1566 to try and see if a deal could be done. However, the only concession that she would make would be to make a financial contribution to the running of his household. On everything else, his royal status, religion, the succession, basically all the important stuff, she was still unwilling to negotiate. Shockingly, Maximilian was also unwilling to budge, but more worryingly, the reports coming back from the English ambassador painted a picture of an Archduke Charles of being far from a Protestant sympathiser, but a devout Catholic who tended mass every day. What astonishes me about these negotiations is that despite the two sides being completely irreconcilable on all of the major issues, they kept trying, 
and its supporters never gave up on it. Pro-Hausberg nobles tried to use a parliamentary session in the same year to force Elizabeth to take the succession more seriously. Other factions there wanted Elizabeth to name an heir before any marriage took place, mostly so that they could engineer the naming of Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, and her new son James as the heirs to the throne. Under immense pressure from all sides, under immense pressure from all sides, Elizabeth was forced to make a promise that she would marry, quote, as soon as I can conveniently, a rather naked-sounding delaying tactic. This meant that this whole thing dragged on for even longer, as yet another embassy led by Sussex was sent to Vienna in 1567 to try and make some progress on the matter, but, again, they were offering no concessions, just the same deal. Elizabeth did instruct them to fully educate the Archduke as to the details of the religious settlement in England, in the hope that he would realise that the kingdom was not full-blown Protestant, but a softer form that bore some similarities to traditional Catholicism. While there, Sussex did a bit of masterful negotiating, albeit while going a little off-piste, He convinced the Emperor and the Archduke that Elizabeth was truly committed to the marriage, and while she could not officially tolerate Charles practising Catholicism publicly, as it was against English law, he would be allowed to do it privately, so long as it was kept quiet. Sussex was flying by the seat of his pants here, clearly hoping that this would be acceptable back in England, should he get a deal on these terms. Finally, in October 1567, an agreement was reached, in principle, between the Emperor and Sussex. On the question of religion, Charles could practice his own faith in private, but it had to be without any Englishman present. He had to accompany Elizabeth to Protestant services. He could not criticise England's religion to anyone, nor could he discuss religion at all with any Englishman. If anything dodgy happened, he would be banned from holding Catholic services, and he would have to take the advice of the Privy Council on all religious matters. This was all great, but Charles himself had barely been consulted, and he had serious reservations about most of it. Sussex then sent a copy of the deal back to England in any case, and waited in Vienna for a response, hoping against hope that his off-remit deal would be accepted. As you might expect, the council at home was deeply divided when Sussex's report came back. With Sussex in Austria, and Norfolk unable to attend council due to his wife being seriously ill, the Prohausberg camp was without two of its main supporters, and that its opponents, led by Robert Dudley, had near free reign. Religious radicals stated that any deal based on Charles not renouncing the Pope was unacceptable, and threatened to preach against the match from the pulpit. More secular types argued that allowing any sort of Catholic mass would cause significant political unrest on both sides of the religious spectrum. For Elizabeth, the dangers of marrying the wrong man were being shown spectacularly through the example of her cousin Mary I of Scotland, who that year had been deposed in favour of her son, thanks in large part to her Catholicism and disastrous marriage to the hated Lord Darnley. In a letter to Sussex, Elizabeth wrote that she had decided that she could not permit even private mass due to issues of her own conscience and fear of unrest. Knowing that there was little point in prolonging the matter any longer, she recalled Sussex and ended any prospect of marrying Archduke Charles. Eventually, though, Charles would find a bride in Maria Anna of Bavaria, who in practice was a more suitable match than Elizabeth ever was. In typical Habsburg fashion, it wasn't exactly a genetically pure marriage, as she was his niece on his mother's side. Gotta love those Habsburgs. She did, though, bring Bavarian support to Charles in his various dealings with the rest of the Habsburg Empire, 
and most importantly, like him, she was a devout Catholic, and so brought some extra clout to his counter-reformation antics. There are a few things that I find truly fascinating about these negotiations. Firstly, is simply the fact that Elizabeth had taken them so seriously. While there is an argument that she continued them only to keep up the pressure on Spain, for complex reasons related to the Low Countries, I do think that she was seriously considering the matter. Why else would she allow such domestic unrest amongst her nobility? I do think that if Emperor Maximilian and Archduke Charles had been willing to budge on the question of religion, then the marriage would have taken place. Secondly, as a fan of realpolitik, it is fascinating how the marriage was so indicative of the tug of war between the pro-Spanish and pro-French factions at court. It became a proxy war between men like Cecil and men like Dudley, which, when mixed in with fierce religious zealots who wanted no part of any entanglements with Catholic powers, led to a political dispute that extended far beyond what a normal marriage negotiation would normally encompass. When Mary had married Philip, his Catholicism had been a concern, but only in the sense of fear of the Inquisition. Just a decade or so on, the mere question of a Catholic being able to practice his faith in private caused fractious disagreement. And thirdly, how this failure of diplomacy led to a severe breakdown in relations between England and the Habsburgs. Austria felt completely mucked about, and Spain lost all hope that England could be brought back to the Catholic fold. In its wake, England had to find new allies, as that Spanish army in the Netherlands suddenly looked very threatening. So, I'm going to leave it here for this week. Next time, we finish this cycle of supplementals and the marriages of the Tudor queens by looking at the two Valois princes that Elizabeth was linked with in the 1570s and 80s. With England seeking to now contain the growing power of Spain and the Habsburgs, Elizabeth's counsellors sought to marry her into a French royal dynasty that was straining at the seams due to the vicious civil wars that were racking the kingdom. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 